So every night at my house, I experience a phenomenon at the dinner table. Years ago, I made my wife a deal that if she would cook, I would clean up the dishes. I'm a terrible cook. She's a great cook. It was a good deal for me. So every, every night, my job's been for the last 28 years to clean up the dishes after the meal. My wife comes. Now, the, the thing is, there's been a new uh, little piece entered into this, and that is four teenage children. 13, 15, 17, 19-year-olds who sit at the table with me now. And you would think it would kind of register for them that maybe they should enter into this same deal with their dad. So every night the same scene repeats itself at our table. My wife gets up from the table. She says, well, um, daddy's made this deal that he'll clean up if, if I cook the dinner. So he's going to clean up the dishes. And then she says this line, you know, one of you should consider helping him out. Somebody should try to help your dad get the dishes done. And then she gets up and off she goes to do her thing. Now this is what happens. As soon as she says this, the kids sit. They look at each other, back and forth. They kind of scan the thing. One of them kind of gets up. The other ones kind of get up. They scan a little bit more. They start mumbling about what they have to get done. And then they all leave the room. This is a never-ending experience for me. And it's funny because I didn't know this, but there's actually psychological studies that have been done on this particular phenomenon. It actually has a scientific name to it. You know what it's called? It's called the bystander effect. It is. They actually have studied this. They've, they've said the, the bigger the crowd of people, when something comes up that needs to be done, the bigger the crowd of people, the less responsibility anyone in the crowd will feel to get the job done. So the larger the crowd you have in a, in a space, when a, when a job is presented to that group of people, because there's a huge crowd, everyone figures somebody else will do the job. Somebody will get it done. And they all get up and leave. My friend was a ski patrol guy, and he told me this is something they have to study on ski patrol duty because he'd ski down the hill to where the injury was on in the, in the hill. There'd be a crowd of people gathered around. He couldn't just go on the scene and say, will somebody please call an ambulance? Because everybody would assume somebody would call an ambulance. They'd all look at each other and stand there, and nobody would call an ambulance. So he had to come on the scene. He had to point to one person and say, you, get out your cell phone right now. And call an ambulance. And when he did that, the person felt responsible to step into action. Now this bystander effect makes me think about the church. Because churches are a place where big crowds gather every Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Saturday evening, whatever it might be, for worship. We come together, we gather as a crowd, and I wonder if the bystander effect is affecting the church at all today. I wonder how much influence it's having on how, uh, how effective we are at accomplishing the mission of God. I mean, how many people sit in church and think, well, our church is getting these things done, so I guess we're good. You know, a pastor gets up in front of the church and he preaches a sermon. And he says, we got to get this done, we got to get that done, and Jesus is calling you to do this, and Jesus is calling you to do that. And everyone leaves and says, well, that was a good sermon, and somebody here is getting that done. So that's good for me. I even wonder when we read the Bible, do we really think that Jesus meant these things for us? When it says things like, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick, invite the stranger in. Do you think that was directed to you individually? Or was that just sort of generally directed in the direction of the crowd that we call the church? And maybe the biggest question is this. How many of you sitting here right now, feel deep personal responsibility 
for the mission of God to be accomplished on the face of the earth. A deep responsibility, you individually, that it depends on you to go make a disciple. It depends on you to get involved. Not just the church staff, not, the, not just Compass Church in general, but it depends on you. What's God calling you to do? Now, the book of Acts is awesome because it actually kind of gives us an answer to this question and it asks us other questions. Because we first need to probably know what we're actually being asked to do. Like, what is this mission that we're actually on? And Acts helps us understand what that mission is. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is with his disciples after his resurrection. He hasn't ascended into heaven yet. And in verse 6, he says this. Do not leave, this is, sorry, verse 4. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized, you'll be immersed, you'll be saturated with the Holy Spirit. So he's telling them, you, you need to wait here. Just stay in this place and wait. Don't do anything until the Spirit of God falls on you. And then he goes on to say this. Verse 8, he says this. But, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now that's the theme verse of the book of Acts. That's the main theme of this whole book. You will be my witnesses. You know what that word means in Greek in the ancient language? It means martyr. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you will give your lives for this mission that I have started and that you will continue. You will give your life for it. And this is why I am forming you into a people and this is why I am forming my church. I want you to carry on this mission. Each and every one of you be involved in the mission in some way. Now, it's interesting because when we think of the mission of God, I don't know when we think it began, but it's very fascinating because it actually began before time began. Think about this. God's up in heaven. He knows everything. So he's going to create the world, and he knows before he creates it that Adam and Eve are going to fall. He knows that's going to introduce chaos into his creation, and everything's going to go dark and be messed up. So before he ever creates the world... He already conceives of this mission, this plan. Yeah, this is in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read it to you from the, from the message version. It goes like this. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind. Had settled on us as the focus of his love. To be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. He thought of everything. Provided for everything we could possibly need. Letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ. A long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven. Everything on planet earth. A long-range plan. Before time began, he already knew that Jesus was going to come. He was going to form people. And then the cool part is... He was going to invite that people to join him on this mission. All the way back in Genesis, this starts. When God calls Abraham and tells him to leave his country and go to another land and, and start a whole new life there. He tells him, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And the purpose of my blessing is so that you can be a blessing. And then he gives this punchline. All the people on the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. What? Because Jesus is going to come through Abraham's line. And then in Exodus, 
He tells the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, the, the trumpets are going, the, the smoke is going, the lightning and thunder is going. And he says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Wow. So Israel is going to represent to the world what God is like. And if they want to see what God is like, they're going to come and see Israel. And they're going to be a conduit of God's uh, power and life demonstrated through their lives to the world. Wow, he includes Israel in this. And then it gets even cooler because in Isaiah 61, he says this. You have been anointed, anointed with the Spirit to preach good news to the poor. To proclaim freedom for the captives. To banish the brokenhearted. To release the prisoners from darkness. To rebuild the ancient places long devastated. You've been anointed for that. The church, the people of God, anointed. Invited into this amazing thing. And we get in the New Testament, it's awesome. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. And he calls these fishermen. And he says, follow me. And he doesn't say, follow me. I'll make you more spiritual. I'll make you a better person. I'll give you better character. I'll make you a great dad. I'll make you a great employee. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Because the reason Jesus calls us is to get involved in his mission. The reason he created the church was to help him accomplish his mission. So here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses. You will give your lives for this mission. Now, did you know, did you know that when you said yes to Jesus, you were actually saying yes to join him on his mission? Did you know that when you joined the church of Jesus, you were actually saying yes to getting involved personally in God's mission? Did you know that God has something uniquely specific for you to do that no one else on the face of the earth can do? Did you know that you're anointed, that you're priests, that you're blessed to be blessings, that you're his witnesses? Did you know that God was calling you to accomplish his mission? I, I love it. When I was in Israel, the, the, my teacher said this. He said, you know, we're not supposed to just know the story, believe the story, discuss the story, teach the story, learn the story. We're supposed to become part of the story. God is writing a story, and he wants us to be part of it. He's inviting us into his story that he's writing. And when you say yes to this story, it's amazing what happens. When I was working at my uh, church in Indiana years ago, I had had a really long week. And a couple came to me and said, uh, Jeff, um, kind of near where you live, our daughter lives. And she's got this fiancé, and he's recently um, gone into the hospital with cancer. They said, our daughter's struggling with her faith in Jesus, and this guy doesn't have any faith in Jesus. Would you mind going to visit him tomorrow? Well, tomorrow was my day off. So my attitude was, ah, okay, I guess I'll go if I have to. I didn't really want to go. I had to go home and tell my wife, honey, it's been a long week. I've been out three nights, but now I'm going to go out again tomorrow to this hospital room, to this person I don't even know, because this couple thinks that I am the perfect guy to talk to this guy about Jesus. Are you kidding me? So the next morning, I kind of sheepishly told my wife, honey, I just got to run down to the hospital real fast. It's going to just take, you know, 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes, honey. I'll be home in no time. And uh, I went to the hospital, and I went up to the third floor. I can still remember the room number, 3478. 
and the door was kind of closed, and I, I pushed it, knocked on the door, and it kind of pushed open a little bit, and there was a, a girl standing in there that I didn't know um, with kind of a nurse's thing on. And I said, are you the nurse? No, she said, no, I'm, I'm uh, so-and-so's daughter. It's people that sent me over. And I walked around the corner of the room, and there in the bed was a guy full of tubes and hooked up to all kinds of stuff. And He says, as he sees me come around the corner, he says, Kleiner. I said, no, that's my brother. I'm, I'm Jeff Klein. He goes, Kleiner, dude, we played softball together. I'm t- it's me, it's, it's me, Tubby. This guy used to be 6'5", 270 pounds, would hit home run after home run after home run. I played 60 games of softball for two summers in a row with this guy 10 years before this. And now God had sent me to his room and his deathbed. I sat down next to his bed. He started telling me about his cancer. He started telling me that he had seen the other side that was bright and white and it was going to be amazing. And I had, to, I had to break the news to him. It didn't work that way. You don't get to just go to the bright white place unless certain things happen in your life. So, well, tell me about it. So there on his deathbed, I share with Tubby the gospel of Jesus. And he received the Lord in his bed. His family told me the next day how different he was. He died 24 hours later. I got to do his funeral and talk to all my old softball buddies about Tubby's decision to follow Jesus on the last day of his life. Guys, you want to be part of the story of God. You want to say yes to the mission. I'm just like you. I'm really, seriously, if you hung out with me, I'm just a mope, mostly. Seriously, that's my wife. She'll tell you, my kids, they'll tell you. I'm just a mope. The thing is, when you say yes to God's mission, say, I want to be part of this story, then he starts to move through your life in amazing ways. You don't want to miss this. You don't want to go through planet Earth just hanging out in your chair and saying, well, somebody's getting the job done. No, God wants you to get the job done. He's got something for you to do. He's got some amazing stuff for you to accomplish in the world on his behalf. Now, it kind of leads to another question because this is great, but how exactly do you get involved in the mission of God? What are the roots of a person and a person's life who chooses this mission with their life? Well, that's the roots. Remember the roots we talked about last week? The repeated patterns, practices, beliefs, and experiences that people have. That's kind of the roots of a, of a church. So what are the repeated patterns, beliefs, experiences, practices we need to have to be involved in the mission of God? Well, again, Acts helps us with this. Uh, you know, Judas, he, he got, uh, well, he hung himself and then he was out, right? So they had to replace him. And I don't know if you've ever read this um, carefully, but in, in chapter 1, verse 21, it says this. Peter's talking. He says, uh, he's talking about the replacement person. He says, therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. In other words, to be a witness, to be on the mission of God, you've had to have, you have to have a personal experience with the resurrected Jesus. Have you had that? When I travel to camps and ask this question of kids, even kids who sit in church every week, more than half of them don't raise their hand. In order to be a missional person, a, a person on the a mission of God, you have to have this experience. You know, it's interesting, in 1 John, John, John says this, he says the first verse, he says this, that which was from the beginning, 
which I have seen with my eyes, which my ears have heard, which my hands have touched, and what my mind has looked into, this I proclaim to you. You can't give witness to what you haven't yourself experienced. So the beginning of being on the mission of God is having a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. That's where it all begins. It's awesome. A second practice you need to have is found in Acts chapter 3. And it's actually, I would say it's this, it's, it's moving in spiritual authority. I'll start with this story. I was taking my, my, my family to the Cubs game a few years ago, about three, four years ago. I don't know why. It's just a big waste of money. It's like flushing your money down the toilet, right? I mean, I'm a Cubs fan. I've been one for like 54 years my whole life. My dad's still a Cubs fan. He's like 79 now. He still sits in front of the TV hoping that something's going to happen. <laughs> Talk about hopelessness, right? So, so we're going to the Cubs game to have more misery. I got the whole family along. And we're leaving our car, we're walking down the street, you know, the bands are playing, the bars are going, you know how Wrigley is, it's all pandemonium's going on all around you, music going, and, and we're walking along, and I'm just like, I'm ADHD, right, so it's like, well, da, da, da. you know, anything, I'm just looking at whatever, I have no idea what's going on, right, so my wife says to me, as we're walking along, she says, shouldn't we stop? I'm like, uh, for what? <laughs> we're going to the Cubs game, honey, you've got to get in the seats, and she said, well, it, it, And she points to the the wall along Wrigley Field there, and there's a man in a wheelchair with no legs. And he has a cup on his arm of his chair, and it's a sign saying that he needs money for food. I'm like, okay, I guess we should stop. So I went over to his wheelchair and um, went up to him, talked to him for a few minutes. Thought, you know, we're spending like $250 flushing our money down the toilet for the Cubs. I might as well give this guy a generous donation. So I, I gave him $10. That's something, huh? Not just a dollar. Not just $5. $10. I wished him well. I blessed him. Went to the Cubs game. Enjoyed myself. Never thought about it again. Till the next morning when I got out of bed. My devotion that morning was Acts chapter 3. You know what happens, right? Peter and John on their way to the temple. We talked about this last week a little bit. And there's a lame guy there. He's asking for money. And they say, we don't have silver or gold. But what we have, we give to you. Get up and walk. And then I thought to myself, really, Jeff, that's all you got? Ten measly dollars? The resurrected Jesus lives inside you. That's all you had to offer this guy with the wheelchair? Ten Dollars. Church of Jesus, if we want to accomplish the mission of Jesus, it's a supernatural mission. We need to learn to move in the authority, the spiritual authority that we've been given. When you begin to believe in a Jesus who wants to work supernatural things out again in the world, in his people's lives, it's going to take supernatural power to take on the enemy's chaos. It's going to take people who are moved in that power, who understand it. We have to have more than a measly 10 bucks or then write a check and let somebody else do it. We've got to tune in and say, man, what's God want me to do in this situation? How can I enter in with great power and authority? 
That's the second practice of a person who chooses to get in the, the story of God. Get involved. Become part of the story. Here's a third one. You know, it's Stephen, right? Stephen was one of the deacons chosen in Acts chapter 6 to wait on tables. He was chosen to wait on tables and give some poor people some food and some widows and orphans. It was a, it was a big job. But it's interesting because he ends up preaching one of the best sermons ever in Acts chapter 7. He preaches it with great boldness and great courage. And he lays out the gospel with great courage. Folks, Joshua said it, be strong and courageous. For the Lord your God is with you. To be people on the mission of God, we've got to be strong and courageous. We've got to be courageous in the way we move out in the world. I, I, my friend in, uh, lives in Michigan. He has uh, several, a couple kids. And his youngest son, a few years ago, was named one of the val valedictorians of his class in high school. So there was eight valedictorians in the school, which I don't know how you have that. But anyway, that's what they had. They had eight of them. So <laughs> it's a really smart school, I guess. <laughs> In my class, there was only one number one. Everybody else was number two and blonde. So anyway, um, but eight valedictorians, and, and so they were all invited to give a speech on a, a life lesson learned at graduation. But their speeches had to be approved by the superintendent. So my friend's son, Jed, he started to pray about what God might have him give his classmates for a life lesson learned. And he decided the best thing he could do would be to memorize 1 Corinthians 10, and recite it to his classmates on that particular graduation as a speech. When he showed it to the superintendent's schools, she said, Oh, Jed, I'm sorry, this speech is inappropriate. It's too, uh, you know, like religious. I mean, we're a public school here. You can't be doing this kind of stuff in a public school. Well, Jed went home angry. His parents were angry. Somehow, in the course of the next few weeks, the news media got a hold of this story. And they blew it up into a big, huge hullabaloo. Jed, of course, is trying to figure out how she should respond to the superintendent. Should he listen to her as the authority that's been put in his life by God? Or should he ignore her and just do his speech anyway in the rebellious way he wanted to? He decides that he'll submit to the authority that God has put in place. And he won't give his speech. So he went up on graduation when it was his time and said something like, My speech was deemed inappropriate. So I'm just here to say thank you for all that you've done for me. Uh, thank you very much and sat down. Little did he know that his story had inspired one of his fellow valedictorians. He was speaking after Jed. He got up and said, you know what? When I heard Jed's story, I couldn't help but think, you know what? You can't silence Jed. More importantly, you can't silence God. This kid took out John chapter 3 and Philippians chapter 2 and preached the gospel at his graduation. <laughs> It was way worse than Jed's speech. It was awesome. And he just got up there and just gave it to him with all boldness, thinking, you know what, whatever. I don't care. I'm going to just lay it out there. It was awesome. And my friend says, the superintendent got up a little later to speak, and there was a big storm outside. And right when she started speaking, big thunderclap. <laughs> and he turned to his wife and said, God is not happy. <laughs> um, so, so, folks, when we move out on the mission of God, we have to move out with boldness. Authority with the personal experience you've had with the resurrected Jesus. This is the kind of people that change the world. These are the kind of people that start miraculous movements. Movements that change the world. Like the book of Acts. There's one last one I have for you tonight in terms of a practice that we need to have. is people that want to get involved in God's story. And that is this one. Go on purpose and hang out with people that are lost and believe differently than you do. 
Now, wait a minute, you're saying, wait a minute, I've never heard this in church before. Well, maybe, I think a compass you probably have. The reality is, folks, we can't be on the mission of God if we only know Christians. If we only hang out with Christians, how will we ever speak to anybody about this Jesus that we know and want them to know? Right? Paul was amazing at this. Paul goes to the Parthenon in Athens, Greece. You've been to the Parthenon? I've been to the Parthenon. There's idols everywhere. There was even an idol to the unknown God in Acts 17, it tells us. Paul goes there, he hangs out there, and he gets in conversations with the locals about this Jesus and his resurrection. It's a conversation he has, and he starts it up, he goes. He also goes to Ephesus, and he rents what's called the, the, the uh, terrible hall, the Tyran- it's, a, the, it's the hall of Tyrannus, the terrible teacher. And he rents the hall, and at two in the afternoon, every day he hosts discussions about God. I love that. Paul gets it. You know, Deborah Hirsch, she's Alan Hirsch's wife, she said this, where you stand is what you'll see. So if you only stand in religious zones, you'll never get to see the need for God's mission to go out in the earth. So folks, where do you hang out each week on on purpose where non-Christians are? I can tell you for the last eight, nine years, I've written my sermons in the same caribou coffee from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. I hang out in that same caribou coffee. I've adopted the coffee shop. And people come to me. I've got tons of relationships in that coffee shop. Guys have given me money for my church who aren't even Christians. I've read the Bible with non-Christians. I pray with people there just because I hang out there and write my sermons there. It's awesome. I do it on purpose. Even better, I'll tell you a really scandalous one. I got invited by one of my neighbors. He's a guy who uh, has kind of dabbled around in my church a little bit. And so he invited me to what he calls the Illinois Street Brew Fest, which is all about beer. Now, I don't drink beer. I don't even like the stuff. It's disgusting. So I didn't, and he told me, he told me, if you're going to come, Klein, you've got to bring your entry fee as a, as a six-pack of micro-brew brew beer. So I called my one neighbor and said, hey, uh, you need to disciple me on beer drinking because I don't have a clue how to do this. So he takes me over to Benny's Beverage Depot, and there's a whole wall of these beers, and I've got to f- pick one out. And uh, I'm standing there, and he's talking. I'm like, oh, I have no idea. I don't even know where to begin. And then I saw it, the Hebrew, Hebrew ale, the chosen beer. <laughs> I'm like, that's the one right there. I don't care what it tastes like. That's got to be the one. So I picked that thing off the shelf. I, I brought it to the party. It was, it was amazing. I got to know 42 lost guys at this party just hanging out with my neighbors playing pool and having conversations throughout the room now most people would say well a Christian doesn't belong there now, Jesus went to a cocktail party in Matthew's house the Pharisees said the same thing about him folks we gotta stop this mentality where we're, we're pointing our noses guys we're, we're, supposed to be enter, we're supposed to be able to enter into any situation as the presence of Jesus And it shouldn't be that we get influenced by the situation. We should come in and bring the light and the salt and the power of Jesus into that room wherever we go. So where are you going to go this week to hang out with these non-Christians? And guess what? Because of this, I started what I call a Q place in my house. I invited six of my neighbors and another guy invited six of his neighbors that don't know Jesus to come to our houses and, and just have a conversation about God. That group has been going for two years now. 
We've had guys come to know the Lord in our living room. Because we spent time with them first, earned the right to be heard, and now they're in our living room talking about God and about Jesus and reading the Bible with us. I could tell you a million stories I don't have time to just from that cute place. One week, the one guy, was, he said it was, we said it was halftime in your life, and the Lord's trying to tell you what to do with the second half of your life, and he says to us, well, I'm supposed to get ready for eternity. I said, really, how are you going to do that? He said, and he gave me a list of like six or seven things. And then he turned it back on me. He said, so what about you? What are you going to do? Aren't you like a pastor or something? You're gonna, what are you going to do? I said, nothing. Absolutely nothing. He said, what do you mean nothing? I said, yeah. I don't need to do anything. Jesus did it all for me. I'm good. He said, you mean to tell me you're like in the speed pass line at Disney World? And I'm like in the line behind three busloads full of kids? I go, yeah. But you can get my line. On the way home that night in the car with his Christian friend, he prayed in his driveway to receive the Lord. Guys, we can't accomplish the mission unless we're out where people are that need this Jesus. Now, you know, there's a lot of ways to get involved in this mission. Uh, you can volunteer in this church. It's awesome. I, I, I saw the celebration of all the hours given. I understand a church like this doesn't operate without tons of people giving tons of time. So if you're still sitting here and haven't been involved and, and haven't gotten to be part of God's story right here at Compass... Man, you should get up tonight before you leave. Go to the welcome desk. Or Pastor Rick, he'd love to sign you up. He'll give you a job probably tomorrow morning. <laughs> right? If you come down and talk to him, he'll, he'll be all over it. You know, you, 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 again, think about it, guys. God's story's being written. And if you're not involved in helping to write that story, you're missing out. God could be working miracles through your life. If you're just sitting in your seat as a bystander, looking back and forth, thinking, well, somebody's getting it done then you're not personally engaged in the mission of God. That's a crime. Because Jesus has invited you to join him in what he's doing. That's amazing. And if you can't handle that, maybe, then I'll just challenge you with this. What if you got up tomorrow morning, and what if your prayer was simply this? Lord Jesus, I want to join you today in what you're doing in the world. Could you please use me somewhere today? Just use me, Lord. You know, I did that uh, about three years ago. I got up, and I even, I even added a little punch to my prayer. I said, God, this, today I want you to use me mightily. I want to do something big in your kingdom. An hour later, my phone rang. It was a single mom in my church. Her husband had an affair a year earlier and had walked out on her, leaving her with a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old. She said, hey, Jeff, my toilet's broken. I'm like, God, big thing. <laughs> toilet's broken? Are you kidding me? So she said, I, you know, I got the new parts, and I think I might be able to do it, but, you know, if, if I can't figure this out, would you mind coming over and helping me out with this? So I said, okay, it's okay, Laura, sure, you know, you, you, why don't you try it first, and then if you can't get it to work. Because <laughs> I'm on to some big things today, Laura, some really big things. God's got some big stuff for me to do. If you can't get it to work, then I'll come over later and do it. So at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, my phone rings, it's Laura. She says, uh, you know, Jeff, um, uh, Vivian's trying to potty train here, and I, I just, it's a mess, because she, if the toilet won't flush, it just doesn't work out well. 
can you come over and fix this toilet? I said, okay, I'll be right over. So here I go with my tools. And this is a 10-minute job. All day long I've been praying, Lord, come on. Where's the big thing we're going to do? So I go in there. I walk in the house. All three children are screaming at the top of their lungs. Pandemonium. It reminded me of my house when I had four children at the same age. Screaming. So I go up to the bathroom. I, I quickly get involved with this toilet thing. i got to get out of here as quick as I can. So in 10 minutes I had the toilet working perfectly fine. And I started to walk out of the bathroom and started to go down the stairs to go back to the main level. And there at the bottom of the stairs was the smallest, the one-year-old. And she was just standing like this. <laughs> right? So I decided to talk to her. I said, hey, it's okay. Vivian, it's okay. It's all right. What's going on? And for some reason, she stopped screaming and she started babbling some nonsensical language back at me. Whatever. So I walked down the stairs and I sat down on the stair next to her and there was a chunky book there. And I took the chunky book out and I put it on my lap and she sat next to me and I started to read the chunky book to her. And then the other two kids heard something going on. They came and stopped screaming and they sat next to me on the stairs and we read a chunky book on this single mom's stairs in her living room. And then she came out of the kitchen and her tears were running down her cheeks. She texted me an hour later and said, my kids haven't been this quiet in weeks. Thank you for coming to fix my toilet. She invited me to come back and pray over her daughter's room, over her house. All because I said, God, use me to do something big today. I didn't know how big it really was going to be. Will you pray that prayer tomorrow morning? When you get out of bed? I dare you. And see how God invites you to join him on his mission. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's amazing that you have invited us to be part of what you're doing in the world. Not just us collectively, Lord, but us, each of us. You've invited each of us to be part of what you're doing in the world. Lord, um, that's unbelievable because you could do it yourself. But you want to write us into the story. So Lord, I pray that right now, your Holy Spirit, we're moving through this room and speaking to your people, specifically, individually, about what you'd have for them to do this week to join you in your mission. In your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.